0: America's celebrity culture is rampant, uh, maybe out of control. It seems everyone wants to be famous. Everyone wants to brand themselves, build a platform, lure fans and followers, go viral, get contracts, buy a private jet. And Christians are not immune. So where did this celebrity culture come from in the first place? Well, the answer to that question is shocking. It's shocking because it turns out that our celebrity culture was exported from Britain in the 18th century in the form of a preacher. That's the argument of one historian we will talk to you today, and it's a story worth telling because many of us really don't know what to do with Christian celebrities today. What are we to do with celebrity preachers? Do we cut them down in the name of guarding the health of the church? Do we celebrate them? Do we ignore them? Do we build them up and tear them down? And what about celebrity artists, authors, songwriters, rappers? Do we help to propel their fame? Do we treat them differently than preachers? And how much of the gospel should those artists be responsible for in bringing to the culture through their platform? All of these questions are still getting worked out, but the questions are not new. And today on the Authors in the Line podcast, we go back in history to study the struggles and opportunities of celebrity preachers and artists in the church. And to do that, we talk with two biographers who have lived long enough in the 18th century to help us make sense of the celebrity culture today. A little later, we will talk with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, author of the new biography, Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Poet, Reformer, Abolitionist. Hannah Moore, an incredibly gifted writer of literature, will serve as our celebrity artist. Our celebrity preacher is George Whitfield. And first up, we talk with historian Dr. Thomas Kidd, professor of history at Baylor University, and he is the author of the new book, George Whitfield: America's Spiritual Founding Father, a landmark biography published recently by Yale. We will begin this journey of Christian celebrity in the 18th century by asking Thomas to explain, in modern terms, just how massive of a figure was George Whitfield.
1: Well, he's the best-known person in America and in Britain in the 18th century before the American Revolution. Period. Uh, I mean, he's, he's a he's a superstar. Uh, that in a way almost doesn't have modern parallels because we have uh, superstars who, who in certain niches where, you know, Lady Gaga has however many followers on Twitter, but many of us uh, do not follow her very closely. And, and but Whitfield is a kind of singular uh, uh, force and celebrity in, in the 18th century, uh, who in his time, in terms of name recognition, is really only Probably surpassed by the King of England, but the the difference with the King is that people have seen Whitfield, uh, people have heard Whitfield preach, uh, or a, at least they've heard about Whitfield and his sensational ministry. They've read maybe newspaper accounts, uh, maybe they've have read a sermon of his. Uh, where people haven't seen the King, uh, they haven't heard the King, they haven't met the King especially in America. Um, So, Whitfield, because of his uh, mastery of the media, because of his incredibly energetic uh, preaching and travel schedule, uh, is just seen by probably, or at least recognized by the vast majority of people in Britain and in America at his time. Um, And so he's, he's really, I think the first modern celebrity, not just religious celebrity, but, but celebrity of any kind ever
0: so George Whitfield invented the celebrity pastor
1: well he invented the American celebrity culture <laughs> I I mean the celebrity pastor is just a subset of that
0: <laughs> oh my uh, okay so how old was Whitfield uh, how old was Whitfield when he realizes I'm a superstar by his mid20s. I mean, this is incredibly young. Uh, how does he How does he process this in his mid twenties?
1: I think he is um, a little surprised, uh, as I think anyone would be. I mean, you can't exactly plan for this kind of celebrity. Um, you You can try to get the word out about uh, your ministry and your work. Um, but almost overnight, he starts drawing audiences in the late 1730s uh, in England, um, in, in Bristol, and especially in London, in the tens of thousands, uh, up to audiences in, in London that are reported as high as 80,000 people. Um, and this is, uh, you, you know, we could imagine this maybe at a college football game or something like this, but it's critically without amplification, uh, and, and without stadiums, uh, he has he has none of the modern accoutrements of of a kind of rock star type of type of celebrity. Uh, it's it's just the the sheer uh, force of, of of his ministry and the sensation of the way that he preaches, his talents that draws all these people in. And so, yeah, by the time he's you know uh, 24, 25, he is uh, reflecting. Um, openly in his journals and his letters about what has happened to him. And, and my favorite phrase that he uses about this is he says he's going through the fiery trial of popularity. That's a great phrase, isn't it? I mean, and, and, and that tells you that he knows it's, it's a trial and it has temptations to sin. He knows that it has temptations to arrogance, uh, cockiness, um, uh, self-indulgence, self-aggrandizement. Um, he's, a lot of money is passing through his ministry, and he knows that there's temptations that are associated with that. And I think that uh, to the extent that he's pretty successful uh, at weathering the fiery trial of popularity, it is partly because he becomes self-aware uh, of it at a, at a relatively early age. So the temptations come early, but I think the the self-awareness Uh, also comes early, and he's talking about it uh, very openly, uh, quickly after he starts to draw these huge crowds.
0: Was there a celebrity culture in Britain at the time of any resemblance to what we think of as a celebrity culture today?
1: I think there is a way in which he is new as this uh, mega celebrity pastor, but I mean, he has people around him uh, say famous stage actors in, in London. Uh, David Garrick is probably the best known actor, uh, in London at the time. But Garrick doesn't have the kind of celebrity that, that Whitfield does. He doesn't have anywhere like, like the reach that Whitfield does. And that's partly because of the nature of Whitfield's itinerant ministry. Uh, and Garrick tends to stay home in, in London. Um, but it's also because no one, uh, masters uh, the new media of the time the way that Whitfield does. Um, And so there are people before him, I mean, you know, uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, I mean, these people are, of course, they're very well known. But you don't have scenes uh, in Luther and Calvin's ministry quite the same way where there are these numbers coming to see them uh, preach outdoors. where, when you get word that Whitfield is coming to town, uh, you, you know, that people would drop everything, literally. They would drop their farm implements <laughs> and go running as fast as they could because they're afraid they might miss him. Um, and that, that is a level of, of celebrity that I think is historically unprecedented. Um, and it, it, it does create, I think, certain problems with the way that we interpret. Uh, Whitfield, because we do associate uh, celebrity with insincerity a lot of the time, um, but but I, I think it's uh, it's not coincidental, and it and it influences what the evangelical movement is like through present day. Uh, that the first great celebrity of the English-speaking world is a pastor. I, I, I think I think that that is so striking. And it tells us a lot about the, the challenges that we continue to have today with celebrity pastor culture.
0: In your outstanding biography, you write this quote Whitfield was the first internationally famous itinerant preacher and the first modern transatlantic celebrity of any kind. With apologies to the Beatles, George Whitfield was the first British sensation. But again, his celebrity need not suggest vacuity or shallowness. His mastery of media combined with an innate rhetorical genius to make him a remarkably recognized figure. Sometimes people become famous because they are extremely good at what they do. End quote. There's so much here I want to talk about in the in the next few minutes. But so so did Whitfield set out to become famous or was he just that naturally good?
1: Right. I think that he it's a tough balance because I'm sure Pastors listening to this can identify with uh, the desire to make an impact. I I mean, there's nothing wrong with the desire to make an impact for the gospel. So, you know, did he seek to become famous for his own glory? Uh, I know that he struggled with that. He, He said he struggled with that. But I do believe that on balance through his career, the main point for him was God's glory and the gospel. Um, now Whitfield is not a perfect man. Uh, he he has his failings, uh, and some of them he saw. Some of uh, some of them we see more clearly in retrospect. But I think on the question of his own uh, success in ministry, I think uh, God's glory and the gospel really are the point for him. And he's um, he's phenomenally talented. I mean that that is one of the reasons for his his success. And he, so he uh, is an extremely accomplished and and studied and polished public speaker. I, I mean, and he he probably <laughs> gives something like eighteen twenty thousand 20,000 sermons in his career. So he has plenty of practice, but he, he's able to give because he's an itinerant. He's able to give the same sermons over and over and over. Um, and he doesn't use notes. He memorizes the sermon, and he's able to tailor them to what's going on with the audience at the moment. Um, and he does controversially have this acting background. He trains as a, as a stage actor, as a teenager, and then repudiates that after his conversion, because he thinks that the, the, the stage tends to glorify uh, sin. But he clearly brings some of those lessons from the theater over into his preaching. Uh, if nothing else, his ability to project his voice—how uh, could you know twenty-five or thirty thousand people hear him at one time? Well, it's because a he must have just been a loud guy. But but I think he also, because of his theater background, he knows how to project his voice over distances. So he he's just extraordinarily talented. I, I wish I had a YouTube clip. <laughs> oh, how I wish I had a YouTube clip of him preaching, because then you would see. Um, but by all accounts, he's he's phenomenally talented, and so um, he is. I think one of these people uh, who becomes famous. Um, you know, there are some celebrities who are just celebrities because somehow they're celebrities. You know, they're not drawing off of vast reservoirs of talent. But he, in his field, is is a savant. Uh, he, he he's phenomenally talented with God-given gifts, uh, both natural gifts and spiritual gifts. Um, and and I think that is a lot of the reason plain and simple why he becomes as famous as he is
0: yeah so he becomes extremely famous does Whitfield embrace his fame as a means of gospel advance
1: yes I think he does and i I think that he believes that this is the place that God has put him and that there are temptations that come along with it uh, but that if he's faithful uh, to uh, solid gospel preaching, biblical gospel preaching, doctrinally sound preaching, um, that if he is as famous as he is, that that means the gospel will get uh, more exposure than it would have otherwise in Britain and America. And boy, did it. <laughs> you know, I mean, wow, did it. I mean, and and so he is uniquely positioned because all these people are drawn to him through his rigorous travel schedule, through the newspapers and the publication of his journals, and all the controversy that's created. You know, people are denouncing him, they're attacking him. In a few cases, they try to assassinate him. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I mean, you know, so he's a con- he's an incredibly controversial figure. But I think he's one to just take that and roll with that in the interest of the gospel because he knows that in the end this all just brings more attention to the gospel and and part of my sense in the book is that though he does tone down some stuff uh, that he preached early in his career that his doctrine in my view uh, as an evangelical in my view his doctrine remains sound and solid throughout his his career so the payoff i think ultimately of his celebrity is broader exposure uh for the gospel and there's a level at which who can complain about that Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: so who was behind uh the assassination attempts do we know
1: uh it can be hard to tell sometimes it's people that uh hate him for one reason or another and and he had plenty of people who hated him um they 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 didn't like what he said, uh they didn't like his doctrine, uh they saw him as a rabble rouser. But I think it's also um you know, you see cases like this today, it may be people who are uh unhinged uh mentally, um and who maybe think that they'll become famous themselves. Um it, it's hard to understand what their motivation is. Um, and then there are other times, uh, there, there's there's one episode in uh, Dublin, Ireland, uh, where he's just attacked by a mob. Um, and so it's not one individual who who sneaks up on him. That happens in a couple of cases in England. Um, but he's attacked by a rock-throwing mob. Um, and it, uh, he says <laughs> that he... If he hadn't been wearing his coonskin cap, <laughs> he, he would have been killed by this mob. You know, you see, he, he's friends with Ben Franklin, you know, and so he wears a coonskin cap, too. And, and uh, but he says it's that coonskin cap that keeps him from getting killed by these these rocks they're throwing at him. But it's, it just speaks to when you become famous like that, you become the target of attacks, usually just print attacks. But sometimes, occasionally, it can lead. When you're that titanic of a star, you can be subject even of assassination attempts.
0: Uh, So I I, I guess we have to ask, I mean, does the church bear a responsibility to protect their celebrities?
1: Well, it cuts both ways. Um, I think that it would certainly behoove every uh, minister or Christian figure, writer, uh, who who, who becomes well-known to realize, as Whitfield realized, that this comes with unique temptations uh, to sin. Um, And we know uh, that many celebrity pastors in in recent decades have fallen uh, to that kind of temptation, whether it's a lack of accountability, uh, and you give in to temptations of uh, overspending, uh sexual temptations uh and just temptations that come along with arrogance and kind of lack of accountability i can do what i want to it's me <laughs> you know I mean, that that's the attitude that that's birthed in our hearts i think by just any even a little taste of celebrity um and, and so i think it would behoove anyone who ends up in that situation uh to remember that I think from the church's perspective, uh, we uh, as evangelicals, um, we love to build people up and then we love to tear them down. Uh, and that's the way that uh, celebrity culture works. I mean, so much of what you see on Twitter is people yeah. being torn up uh, built up and then later torn down. Um, and that that's kind of an awful cycle um, and and Christians, I think, should be cautious. Both about building people up, and especially in any kind of idolatrous way, um, but we should also be careful about rejoicing when people fall. Um, and so that I think that requires you know some real wisdom. I think though that there's just a level at which, especially in our media-driven culture, if Whitfield lived in a media-driven culture, my heavens! I mean, we we live in an amazingly media-driven world. Um, and so there's just a level at which, uh, I don't know how we can do without Christian celebrities. I don't know how we can do without uh, celebrity pastors, uh, but we better watch out. Um, and, and, and I think that uh, those people will do well to build in real accountability structures for themselves within their church. And then they better ask, by the way, uh, you know are they actually connected to a church because some of these Christian celebrities today if you if you scratch the surface, you find out that they're actually not involved with church. <laughs> That's a serious warning sign right there. Um, but you know there's got to be the accountability patterns within their church, within a circle of friends uh, who understand and and y- you better go uh, above and beyond building the accountability structures. Uh, to be as safe as possible from the temptations of popularity.
0: So did Whitfield have any level of accountability in his life like this?
1: I think he would fall into the category of somebody who, I mean, it's a different setting because he's a Church of England minister. Uh, So there is a kind of almost bureaucratic structure That he's subject to, that he would regularly uh, flout (laughs) and (laughs) violate. But the reason was because he, they were telling him to stop preaching the gospel the way that he was, and so of course he's not going to go along with that. And I think substantially he's right to do that. But because he's not attached to a particular congregation. Uh, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. And, and I think uh, the part of him, his temptations was that he's just constantly on the road. He has no congregation that he's attached to. On the other hand, I do think that he had a network of uh, pastors and other friends who really did uh, serve as that kind of accountability network for him. And he did have people in his life that would, would uh, criticize him for what he was doing, friends of his. Uh, Of course, he had plenty of enemies who would criticize him, but he also had friends who could call him on things. Um, So I think in terms of his ministry uh, and the usual temptations that that you walk through about money, um, um, illicit relationships uh, with women, Um, you know. Cockiness and arrogance. I, I think, on the most obvious kinds of sins, he he weathered the storm pretty well. Um, now he had other failings, um, like uh, his advocacy of slavery, which is a major issue in in the book that he that he didn't see. But he didn't really have anybody calling him on, on it either, because people at the time just didn't quite get that that was the problem that it was. Um, but I think, in terms of his ministry. Uh, in my view, he ends up coming off pretty well.
0: You mentioned uh, earlier that a key to Whitfield's success was his mastery of new media. I mean, this is key, and it, this is a really fascinating chapter of of the Whitfield story. Explain for us how he did this. What did he do? What are some of the lessons for us to take away from sort of his process and his methodology when it came to new media?
1: One of the main reasons for his success in his ministry is clearly his mastery of the new media of his time. Now, of course, none of this is electronic. He's not on Twitter. Well, he is on Twitter, but <laughs> posthumously. And so uh, he he's working with newspaper men, advertisers, publishers who could bring out cheap print editions of his journals and sermons, kind of rapid response publishing uh, so that his sermons and journals would come out and get massive distribution really quickly uh, across these networks. So these kind of things do work in some ways uh, in a way that's reminiscent of the way that social media works today and publishing works today. Uh, It's just for him that's not happening as quickly as it happens today. So when he would go uh, to uh, key cities, whether it's uh, London or Glasgow or Philadelphia, he would be looking for partners, media partners, who were the best media experts of the time, and he would enlist them to uh, do newspaper coverage and do advertising, and he would supply them, or his media people would supply them with stories about his ministry. Uh, you know, today we might kind of call them puff pieces, um, and so uh, he is recruiting this massive intercontinental transatlantic network of media people to uh, feed into the publicity for his ministry, his preaching, his sermons, his journals. And so the the, the best recognizable uh, uh, exemplar of this is when he goes to Philadelphia for the first time in the late 1730s. He asks around, I think this happened, he asks around and says, "Who who's the best media guy in town? And they tell him, well, you need to go talk to this Ben Franklin. And Franklin at that point is not very famous. Uh, he's just emerging as the most important uh, printer and publisher, certainly in Philadelphia, and I think ultimately in America, he would become the best publisher uh, in the colonies. Uh, but he's very, very good at what he does, and and he has already recognized a year before Franklin uh, uh, meets Whitfield. A year before Whitfield has come to America, Franklin has already latched on him, and he's getting these reports about this uh, incredible preacher who's reaching tens of thousands of people in England. And so he starts reporting on it in uh, in in his newspaper in Philadelphia. And so they meet uh, and make this agreement that Franklin will become his lead uh, publisher in Philadelphia and the most important publisher uh, for Whitfield in the colonies. And what's weird about this is that Franklin is not an evangelical Christian. Uh, he's not born again. Uh, Franklin knows it. Whitfield knows it. Um, so the relationship starts on a business level, um, and this speaks, I think, to uh, Whitfield's willingness to partner with, uh, you know, not born again, or uh, you know, today we would talk about partnering with secular people because they're so good at what they do. Um, I, I think he he speaks to uh, kind of openness to work with the best new media people to get the word out about the gospel and his ministry. But what's even more fascinating about their relationship, it becomes, uh, I think, a very close friendship and that lasts for 30 years. Whitfield would routinely talk to Franklin, not just about, I mean, every letter is about, now I need you to have this published by this time and do work on this for me. But a lot of times then he would pivot and say, now, Mr. Franklin, <laughs> we need to talk about Jesus. And, and and he would talk to him very openly, very frankly, about his, Franklin's need to be born again. And Franklin, you know, would kind of say, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm all set. Whitfield never would let up. And at the end, when, when Whitfield dies in 1770, uh, Franklin talks about in his autobiography that he, he says, you know, Whitfield would pray. For my conversion. And he died without having the satisfaction of believing that those prayers had been answered. So it's just sad. You know, it's a, it's a sad note. Um, but Franklin also, even in just private correspondence that Franklin never expected to be published, he would talk about what a man of integrity that Whitfield was. Now, Franklin made a lot of money off of Whitfield, off of publishing Whitfield. But at the end, I think what Franklin is so struck by is, is Whitfield's integrity. And uh, he—he's Franklin's very clear. He, he says that he loves him as a personal friend, longtime friend of his, and a man of integrity. I think that speaks
0: very, very well for Whitfield. Yeah, that speaks highly of Whitfield's character. And, uh, I mean, obviously there was no Crossway books. Crossway couldn't publish the collected sermons of Whitfield. Uh, well, Now they do, I guess. That's right. But uh, were, there, were, were there Christian publishers around? I mean, could Whitfield have walked into Philadelphia and asked, who is the best Christian media guy in town? Was that even a question he could ask?
1: He did do that sort of thing. And in a way, Whitfield is helping to invent Christian media. <laughs> you know, to add that to his list of accomplishments, because, for instance, in London, he took over a, a kind of a struggling newspaper uh, that had kind of a Christian emphasis. Now, all the secular "quote unquote" newspapers would also cover religion news. Um, you, you know, so there wasn't that strong distinction, but there were newspapers that, uh, especially, were created in the late 1730s and early 1740s. Specifically, to cover the revivals themselves of the Great Awakening, and so he took over uh the newspaper of a of a London publisher who was an evangelical christian um and said now let's let's use this as a as a vehicle for publicizing all the revivals, but including things that Whitfield is involved with, so he was open to doing that, but I think in in the relationship with Franklin, he says, "Look, this guy uh is." the best in the business uh and and he sees franklin emerging as he was at the time as the first sort of major profitable omnibus you know involved in all all aspects of production and sales and and all this in in printing and publishing in the colonies he's he's really franklin's were really the first one like that you get he's not just doing this on the side uh, as part of a lot of other things uh, and that's why Franklin is such an innovative printer, among uh, many other things that he innovates in. And so I, th- I think that Whitfield sees that, and he likes Franklin. I mean, they they hit it off in their initial meeting, and so uh, that all that combines to say, you know, this guy is the best in publishing in the colonies, and I'm gonna I'm going to work with him, uh, and it's a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, and it's it's part of the way that Franklin himself ends up becoming wealthy and famous as being Whitfield's publisher, uh, and so it just works. I mean, you you certainly will need to watch out for that sort of thing if you're Whitfield, about what kind of corners get cut and this this sort of thing compromises could be made. But in the end, I mean, Franklin uh, will publish anything that that, that Whitfield sends to him. But the trick is also that Franklin will publish anti-Whitfield material. <laughs> Franklin and, and, and Whitfield is, is fine with that because to him, controversy, though Whitfield may not like it, but controversy brings even more attention to his ministry and to the gospel. So he's content to, yeah, okay, if people send you uh, stuff that's against me, fine, publish it. I don't mind. <laughs> Which I think speaks to a, a real magnanimity about, about Whitfield that he's not too uh, uh, thin skinned about criticism.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a dark side of Christian celebrity uh, when it comes to the criticism that comes with it. Uh, But going back to the quote I read from your biography, Whitfield's theology was not shallow. And in our context today, I think a man or a woman who wants to build a huge and popular ministry, who wants to be famous— will be tempted to compromise what is clear in Scripture, probably downplayed the the severity of God's active wrath on sin, probably will not talk much about penal substitutionary atonement or the pervasiveness of sin in humanity, probably will not touch the sinfulness of homosexual practice with a 10-foot pole, not in public at least. In his context, uh, as his fame soared, was Whitfield pressured to soften the hard things of God?
1: On Calvinist distinctives uh which are many of the things you just listed right there, uh Whitfield does not ever back off and and some of his sermons are uh really just hair raising <laughs> as far as <laughs> threatening the wrath of God on people i mean there there's a a common phrase that he would use about people who are lost in their sin, and he would say. People who are lost sinners are half devils and half beasts. This is not really seeker-sensitive kind of stuff, is it? And and yet people would, uh, independently in their their letters or memoirs about their conversion under Whitfield's memory, uh, both men and women, they would remember that phrase about him saying, I'm like a half devil and a half beast, you know, chasing after the temptations of the flesh and the temptations of the devil. And and they would say, you know what? That was my condition before I met Christ. I, I couldn't control my sin. Uh, and, and so they would hear that and they would say, you know what? That's rough, but it's reflective of my life experience. But I think it also tells you that they live in a world, people in 18th century Britain and America, they live in a world that's much more deeply familiar with just basic Bible doctrine and the Bible itself than we are today. And so I I wouldn't criticize people today for kind of easing people in to the message of Scripture about uh, issues like hell and damnation and the judgment against sinners that's coming. I mean, mean, because that's just not much part of our kind of pop culture, whereas strangely in the 18th century, it kind of is. I mean, people are just much more highly biblically literate at that time than, than we are today. And so it's people who... The people who are often getting saved in the Great Awakening are people who know a lot about Scripture, and they've maybe been going to church for most of their lives. But Whitfield says, have you ever had a, a, a saving encounter with Jesus Christ? Do, do, you, do you know Christ uh, in, in, on a personal level? And that's why he puts so much focus on the born-again experience. There are even pastors who have been serving for decades who say, you know what? I think I know a lot in my head uh about Christ, but I, I I haven't, you know, had this conversion experience that John 3 talks about. Um so he's talking to people who are very familiar with the Bible, therefore he can I think get away with more uh, of the harsh aspects right at the beginning uh, because people were more used to that. Now, having said that, I will say that he does back off on some Aspects of his teaching and uh, things that he talks about in his journal. And those are aspects of his ministry that are uh, attuned to the work of the Holy Spirit in his life and in revival. It is shocking in some ways to see a, a Calvinist evangelist uh, par excellence who is also, in, in, especially in his early ministry, in his early days after his conversion, uh, so. Uh, heavily focused on the work of the holy spirit the indwelling presence of the holy spirit uh, the in the infilling of the holy spirit in his life and ministry and so in his early journals he's talking about having for instance revelatory dreams that you know a lot, a lot of calvinist evangelicals today would be whoa you know that's <laughs> a little uh it's a little tough to swallow uh and some of that uh, including through the influence of Jonathan Edwards, uh, who he met in 1740 uh, personally for the first time. Um, Edwards and other people are telling him, okay, the Holy Spirit's really important, and you better watch out for some of these excesses, um, because he's starting to talk about unconverted pastors. Uh, he's he's talking, talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, telling him what to say, uh, taking to individual verses, and you must preach on this. And they say, okay, that that can happen, but we may not want to make that a norm. And I think Whitfield came to believe that some of the excesses that happen in, on some of the radical edges of the Great Awakening, especially in America, are, are because of a, a little bit of an incautious emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, and so he backed off on some of that, including coming out with later editions of the journals that excised some of that stuff. Uh, so that, to me, is what uh, he backed off on. I, I don't think that most people would probably regard that as a dumbing down of the message.
0: Yeah, and it, just looking back historically at men like George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon is two examples. God raises these types of men up, uh, maybe not every generation, but... On balance, I mean, are celebrity preachers just part of God's work in the world that we can expect from here on?
1: I think that they're going to be a part of God's work in the world. I think celebrity pastors will always be with us, (laughs) to use a scriptural phrase. I mean, there's a way, and I don't mean to be trivial, but there's a way in which Jesus himself struggled with this. Um, and people trying to make him famous in ways that he did not—he explicitly did not want to be famous—and uh, and trying to make him a king uh, when that wasn't his an uh, earthly earthly king that was not his mission uh, at least in his first coming—and um, and so if Jesus struggled with this, then then I think it's no surprise that that later uh, pastors, even those who were highly devoted and motivated by the biblical gospel would, because of their passion, because of their talent, uh, because of their use of the new media of the time, end up becoming well known. I I, I don't think, obviously, that's most pastors' calling, uh, most Christians' calling, um, you, you know, you may be famous at your church, but the, you know, I mean, thats it's probably, you know, you're not probably going to be a media celebrity, but I think some people will become that. And I don't think it's necessarily uh, a bad thing or because of bad motivations on their part. Now, we could easily point to certain, you know, TV preachers and so forth that have gone into scandals and so forth and say, you know, the motivation just wasn't right there. Um, but I think that there are Many other people, um, and you, you cited Spurgeon, uh, you know, exam- examples through history, and then we could look at certain people today, who, um, as long as there's accountability and you walk through the the usual temptations and you say, okay, we don't seem to be having any problems with that, if they're passionate about the gospel and they're, uh, among other things, you, you know, fabulous uh, public speakers, they've just been gifted by God that way, there's a certain level of which I don't think that we should, uh, y- y- you know, begrudge them that. Um, and, and, and I suspect that this dynamic, especially in our media-driven world, it's just the way things play out uh, with, with certain pastors and certain Christian figures of other kinds. Um, and I don't necessarily think, think that it's a bad thing.
0: Yeah, interesting. I, I believe there's somewhere around 200 mentions of the word "crowd" in the four gospel accounts, and I think you're just you're you're exactly right. Jesus certainly must be in any discussion of celebrity preachers. He would certainly qualify as that, as the supreme example of that. Evangelicals are in an interesting place right now when it comes to celebrity preachers, uh, their skepticism. Uh, But when it comes to celebrity Christian artists, there there seems to be more of a wholesale desire to make those artists even more public and more famous. Do you think the temptations are different between a famous pastor and a famous artist?
1: I think that the temptations of those two areas often are, are basically the same. Uh, I, I think that perhaps there's certain vulnerabilities that pastors get into because pastors so often have people, you know, confiding in them and monetarily supporting them in, in, a, in a direct way that maybe are sort of special temptations, but in our celebrity culture, and it's a culture that George Whitefield helped to create, helped to invent uh, for for better or worse, um we are also going to have christian uh, musicians uh actors artists um and there is a temptation uh among fans to elevate and maybe even idolize i mean heck we use the term you know, american idol to to you know and, and Christians do this to their own celebrities um but we've also seen patterns of some of those celebrities turning out to have uh, deep ethical problems, um, deep personal problems, and uh, that they, they kind of collapse in in, in scandal. So I think a lot of the temptations uh, are are the same. Um, there's also a temptation to uh, c- celebrate uh, people who whose message is effectively vacuous, either as a pastor or an artist or an entertainer, uh, but because they're Christian. Uh, that somehow were drawn to that just because uh, they're able to promote it as a Christian product, quote unquote. Um, and I think for for us Christian fans, uh, that that's also a part of the problem. But then you could see there are also uh, fabulous Christian musicians, uh, artists, writers uh, that, in my opinion, deserve to succeed and have no notoriety because uh, they're just that good. So I think that there's just balances that have to be struck here uh, uh, about realizing we're just going to have these kind of celebrity figures, but we better watch out about uh, unduly putting them on a pedestal or themselves putting them, uh, themselves into a position of risk and unaccountability. And I think that that, in a way, works the same whether it's uh, a pastor or a, a different kind of Christian figure.
0: Yes, and you suggested that uh, that Whitfield invented the modern American celebrity culture. He invented the celebrity preacher. He invented Christian media, for better or for worse. He invented many things. And uh, knowing what Whitfield, having your finger on the pulse of contemporary evangelicalism, where do you think? Where where do you see Whitfield's legacy today?
1: I think his influence is clearly. Uh, wired into what evangelical Christianity is as a movement today around the world Uh, in the media driven quality of it, whether we like that or not, it can be both for good and bad that evangelicalism from uh, George Whitefield to Billy Graham to figures today have always been innovators in new media. It's, it's always been the case. I mean, evangelicals have a reputation because of our cultural views of being, you know, those, those are those foggy people. But it turns out that evangelicals are always also on the cutting edge of media innovation, uh, and that's been the way that evangelicals have been so successful in many cases of getting the word out about the gospel and getting people excited about the message of the gospel and, and about looking at the Bible in fresh new ways. That's always been a hallmark of evangelicalism, and it's part of what what can be bad about evangelicalism, but it's also so much a vital part of what evangelicalism is about. I would hope, though, and one of the reasons I wrote this book on Whitfield is that Whitfield is able to balance. He has his imperfections, but one of the best things about him is that he is this titanic celebrity who does not shy away from rigorous biblical doctrine in his preaching. Uh, and if if we get away from that as evangelicals, and it becomes all about celebrity and personality, uh, we are in big trouble. But Whitfield uh, was now he he's no brilliant theologian like Jonathan Edwards, and who who is like Jonathan Edwards. right? I mean, uh, but but he is a Whitfield is a strong, principled, educated uh, Calvinist evangelical uh, preacher. He is deeply rooted, and that doesn't change over his career. And so, if we can have someone who is entrepreneurial the way that Whitfield is, um, but is who is deeply rooted in biblical doctrine, I, I think that's a great combination for uh, the future of evangelical Christianity.
0: That was historian Dr. Thomas Kidd, professor of history at Baylor University, and the author of the new book George Whitfield. America's Spiritual Founding Father, a landmark biography published recently by Yale. It is one of the best books of the year, and you should check it out. By February of 1745, George Whitfield was back in the colonies as a 31-year-old celebrity on his third trip to America. At the same time, back in Britain, a little girl was born to a blue-collar family. That girl was Hannah Moore, the focus of another noteworthy new biography out this fall titled Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, poet, reformer, abolitionist, written by our next guest, Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen is professor of English at Liberty University. We met three years ago through John Wilson, the editor of Books and Culture. He invited us to write a back-and-forth series of articles on reading, which we did. And Karen was impressive and gracious, and we have stayed in touch over the years. And her new Hannah Moore biography is hard to put down because of the vibrant details she brings into the storyline. It's historical, but it's literature too, which is fitting because Hannah Moore was a remarkable writer in church history. She was a celebrity artist who reached heights of celebrity unheard of for women in her time, certainly given her modest background. I asked Karen to open with an elevator pitch summary of Hannah Moore's legacy.
2: Well, of course, as the title of the book suggests, she was a poet, reformer, an abolitionist. But I think what makes her life so extraordinary is that she was an early example of a self-made person because she was born into humble, a humble family and rose into a, really a celebrity through a combination of her own native talent and um, just God's providence in her life. She gained fame pretty early in life and then experienced this conversion to a genuine faith um, that set the course for the rest of her life as this evangelical reformer and abolitionist. And her work ended up literally changing the world.
0: When did it become clear to Hannah Moore that she was uh, a talented writer? Uh, Was there a moment of of self-awareness when that happened?
2: Well, her... First biography, which was written by a family friend immediately following her death, includes just a lot of um, relaying of family lore and and, uh, oral tradition about her life. And uh, according to the stories told about her, they actually knew and she knew she was a talented writer from just a few years of age. Uh, There's actually uh, her first written poem is is recorded as a satirical, funny uh, poem about. Bristol, the city that she grew outside of, it's clear that her family nurtured uh, this talent from early on. Um, She was born uh, the fourth of five girls in this family, and they were all pretty talented and smart girls, but Hannah from the from early on just stood out as one who was particularly gifted with words and language. By the time she was a teenager, um, she was writing verse, poetry, drama, and so forth, and um, she actually wrote uh, some verses that were Somewhat flattering to public speakers that came through Bristol, and uh you know the the towns were much smaller then, and it was easier to get to know people and so some of these powerful men that came to Bristol to speak uh politicians and and writers, she wrote to them, wrote verses honoring them, and those got their attention, and eventually. Some of those people passed her work on to the well-connected people in London, such as uh, David Garrick. And so by the time that she uh, made her first visit to London, she already had an introduction through her poems that had been sent ahead of time. And so she was well-received there.
0: Yeah, so she's climbing the ladder of celebrity. She's becoming famous, well-received by the literati. Uh, She's friends with Samuel Johnson. I mean, what was her relationship like to Johnson?
2: She... Samuel Johnson was one of the first people that she met when she, when she got to London. And by then uh, Johnson was an elderly widower and uh, Hannah Moore was a, about 30 years old. And, and by, and by then had established that she was living a a single life. And so obviously Dr. Johnson was, you know, not in a, a a marrying state, but the two of them hit it off immediately. Um, Dr. Johnson was known of course, for his, uh, his, wit and his way with words and uh hannah was able to just meet him at his level and so the two of them uh formed a fast friendship a uh, lot of flirtation going on that's recorded in the in the letters home and uh they established quite a fast friendship
0: so then later on she's in london uh, around 1784 1785 she's about 40 years old at that point, her good friend Samuel Johnson passes away. Hannah feels the sting of emptiness in her life. You write this about the season in her life in London. Quote, For more, London represented the best and the worst of all that it meant to be human. The best in London offered her literary friends and fame. The worst, the vanity that tempted and repelled her simultaneously." With the deaths of Garrick and Johnson, the best parts had vanished. The worst seemed to glare at her. She had written after one of her early visits to London that, quote, The more I see of the honored, famed, and great, the more I see of the littleness, the unsatisfactoriness of all created good, and that no earthly pleasure can fill up the wants of the immortal principle within. End quote. Now, the truth of this was even more apparent, you write. Explain this. I mean, what's happening in her life at this point when she's uh, roughly 40 years old?
2: Well, from the very first trip that she made to to London, and of course, let let me explain that Bristol was about a two-day drive at that time um, uh, by carriage, and it was common for people to go and winter in London, and so uh, more did end up going and spending most winters in London through her adult life. Um, but even from early on, coming from a more provincial area of the country, uh, Moore was not really impressed with the kind of frivolity and excesses that she saw in London. Um, so she, she never took to them. As a matter of fact, throughout her friendship with uh, the dramatist David Garrick, um, who he and his wife became basically a second family to her. He always teased her about being a Sunday woman because she observed the Sabbath then, which was very unfashionable. Um, and so she always, even, even though she mixed well with this high society, she still had a reputation for being a pious woman and she was always in conflict, uh, over her, um, her more conservative worldview and behaviors, um, That were not, you know, endorsed and and, and modeled in London. So by the time she lost uh, her closest friends there, David Garrett and Samuel Johnson, um, there just really wasn't enough uh, to tempt her uh, to adopt that lifestyle permanently. And so also, by this time, she had um, made a good amount of money from her writing, uh, and so she was able to purchase uh, a place in the country outside of Bristol called Cowslip Green, and there she retreated. And um, And then we see her really beginning to write in her letters more about um, the secluded life, the quiet life, and her spiritual life.
0: Hmm. Roughly speaking, then, when is when is Hannah Moore converted?
2: of course the record doesn't really give uh, you know the day and the the time and the hour as we talk about today more always had been um a more pious woman than than her friends but we see in her letters i i was i was marked the most dramatic um point where we can know that she was experiencing what we would call an evangelical uh relationship uh was when she read um, John Newton's book, Cardifonia, in 1780. Um, This was a collection of letters from John Newton uh, that he had written to various friends about his faith and about the life of faith and what was called then the religion of the heart. And in Moore's letters, she talks about how this... um, this personal faith is one that she was experiencing. And shortly after that, she went to hear Newton um, preach on a Sunday and uh, she writes in a letter uh, that she came home with her pocket stuffed full of sermons.
0: I love that story. Good old John Newton. And uh, she, she knew what it meant to be a celebrity before her conversion. And then after it, Uh, how did the gospel change her as a writer for better or for worse? Well,
2: from the very beginning, her works were always written with a moral purpose. One of her earliest works was a, a play that was written for the female students at her sister's school. Um, she believed that, they, that there were not a lot of good plays out there that were suitable for young girls to read, so she wrote her own. Um, but at the same time, you know, she was writing in um, pretty lofty verse. She was... Um, had studied languages and knew the classical forms. So she was writing from the beginning what we would call polite literature, literature for high learned society. Um, and so that's how she gained her fame early on in London was by writing this polite verse. By the time she experienced this, this conversion and um, decided to uh, seclude herself from fashionable society, um, she turned to just straight up didactic work tracts and treatises that most of us would not read today uh, unless we were studying these times and, and a writer like Moore. Um, although the, they, the works were extremely popular at the time. I mean, she wrote works that were indicting high society for their bad manners, their bad morals, and their inauthentic religion, and these works went through multiple editions. So she really was able to reach... Uh, the people of her time, including high society, but what she sacrificed by writing what we would call popular works is that those works are very tied to the time. So in other words, they they aren't as relevant now, although I find them very rich, and I'm sure you do too, um, but they aren't works that really pass the test of time. So her ability to influence her society during her lifetime's Really meant giving up the ability to write works of more lasting value, um, but of course God is using her um, in that time in that place, and um, no one can do everything, so it's sort of a good news bad news um, situation
0: if we could take a time machine back uh, what do you what would you tell her what would you want her to write after her conversion
2: well it, I think looking at it now from from uh more of a postmodern viewpoint as opposed to a modern viewpoint where, where she seemed to see things as more compartmentalized, you know, um, that there was polite, fashionable society and then there was, you know, the religious life. I think today we can look back and see how those two things don't need to be separated. And so it would be interesting to, to see someone today or someone like her, um, reaching high society through more polite literature, but still maintaining um, her high standards of morality and piety. Um, It's a much tougher balance to achieve, um, but I think that's you know one of the one of the ways that our society is a little bit different from this late modern society is that we see we can see the possibilities for more of an integration of the life of the intellect and the life of the spirit
0: so Hannah Moore was never married; she was stood up at the altar um do you, looking back now I mean do you think Hannah Moore would qualify as a feminist? would she be a feminist? <laughs>
2: well I'm, you know it 's interesting because i 've talked to uh, a number of scholars and, and read some scholarship on her, and, and the scholars are actually very divided. Um, the more radical feminist critics today would certainly not want to call Hannah Moore a feminist because um, Moore actually very clearly set herself against uh, people like Mary Wollstonecraft who what, what is considered the, the mother of feminism, yet at the same time. Um, And of course, feminism wasn't really even a word that was used then, but at the same time, Moore argued for very solid and uh, good advancements for women in education. She wanted women to be educated in ways that expanded their minds and their abilities to serve not only God, but society. And so a lot of the reforms that she called for are ones that are very similar to those called for by Mary Wollstonecraft. So I think that the label feminist, because it wasn't even used then, is difficult to apply one way or the other to, to more, but I think what we can say is that she was a strong woman of the Lord who wanted to raise up other strong women of the Lord um, and to use all of their gifts, including their intellects, for his service.
0: She was a fascinating woman, and I hope every listener will get to know her and her story through your outstanding retelling. She is complex and... She did so many things really well. Uh, Of all that there is to learn about her life, what do you most want readers to take away from from Hannah Moore's life?
2: I want them to see in Hannah Moore a a person who was a product of her times and yet at the same time was able to change her times. Um, That's why I included so much of the historical background because – God puts all of us in different times and cultures and the needs and the cries of those different times and cultures vary. It is our job to know our time and our culture and the needs therein so that we can respond to them too. And I think that Moore presents a wonderful example of someone who, even with her weaknesses as we all have, she wasn't a saint, she doesn't need to be put on a pedestal, um, but she had an extraordinary life simply because she used her abilities and talents in the ways that God provided for her to use them, and God used her to transform her whole society. And I think that's inspiring and humbling and and exciting.
0: That was Karen Swallow Pryor, author of the new biography, Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Poet, Reformer, Abolitionist published recently by Thomas Nelson. Karen is professor of English at Liberty University. Hannah Moore was an amazing woman of God, and at one place in her work she writes to women and explains why seeking celebrity accolades for the accolades themselves is vain ambition. Moore writes this, quote, Preposterous pains have been taken to excite in women an uneasy jealousy that their talents are neither rewarded with public honors nor emoluments in life, nor with inscriptions, statues, and mausoleums after death. It has been absurdly represented to them as a hardship that while they are expected to perform duties, they must yet be content to relinquish honors and must unjustly be compelled to renounce fame while they must sedulously labor to deserve it. But for Christian women to act on the low views suggested to them by their ill-judging panagrists, for Christian women to look up with a giddy head and a throbbing heart to honors and remunerations so little suited to the wants and capacities of an immortal spirit, would be no less ridiculous than if Christian heroes should look back with an envy on the old pagan rewards of ovations, oak garlands, parsley crowns, and laurel wreaths, The Christian hope more than reconciles Christian women to these petty privations by substituting a nobler prize for their ambition, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Though it be one main object of this little work rather to lower than to raise any desire of celebrity in the female heart, yet I would awaken it to a just sensibility to honest fame. I would call on women to reflect that our religion has not only made them heirs to a blessed immortality hereafter, but has greatly raised them in the scale of being here by lifting them to an importance in society unknown to the most polished ages of antiquity. The religion of Christ has even bestowed a degree of renown on the sex beyond what any other religion ever did." honest fame. That's the key. The gospel makes celebrities out of every woman and every man and every child in Christ. But of course, it's fame to be revealed later. The accolades will pour out for all eternity. And yet we're tempted to make a name for ourselves prematurely, a human trend, a common sin with a history that reaches back to the world's first attempted skyscraper of Babel. More is exactly right. We were created to experience fame and honest fame. The Bible tells us we are heirs of the crown of life that will never fade and all the riches of God. We will reign over the earth with Christ. We will be made a kingdom of priests to our God reigning on earth. And he who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. And so what does all this mean for us today? What do we do with celebrity Christians? In the words of the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are in Christ, and Christ is God's. In other words, in the end, if you can anticipate this honest fame that one day you will in Christ inherit the earth and rule over it. If you know this to be true, then you are free to embrace the celebrities God has given the church, the celebrity preachers, the celebrity artists to embrace them as gifts, as gifts of a foretaste of a day when you will reign over it all. As with all the other episodes that have come before this one, episode number 36 is made possible because of the generous financial donors who support Desiring God, people like you. So thank you for supporting our work. And if you would like to partner with us to support this podcast in the future, you can do that by going to DesiringGod.org, click on the Donate tab. Your financial support is always appreciated. I'm your host, Tony Ranke, thanking you for making this podcast a part of your life. I'll see you next time.